I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. I got the loop, Steve! Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. Yogi Paliwa. And so we're coming to an end of uh, the year, of the decade, and we thought probably the best way to close out this decade is... Well, okay, we're all um, kind of in a weird mood. I, I hate that this is the second episode that we have to do this, but we just... I mean, some of the early numbers are coming in, and it's starting to look... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, December 20th, mm-hmm. and from the early results, it's starting to look like uh, The Rise of Skywalker <laughs> sucked ass. <laughs> And we're all trying to deal with that. We're all trying to um, come to terms with it. Uh, the the rise of Skywalker is sitting at fifty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But look, it's still early. That's just the exit polls. So that yeah. it might actually improve once we get the real results from the weekend right, showing. There right. might there might be some you know regional differences. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. I know you know fifty seven percent. It may seem low because uh disney likes to wine dine and everything short of bribe every uh reviewer that they can and still can't break the uh (laughs) not rotten rating (laughs) but 57 is still that's more than 50 so uh that's is this because of the anti-semitism charges (laughs) yeah but I mean, yeah, as we're alluding to here, we're gonna have a, a three part episode on Disney and Walt Disney. And Merry Christmas, you fucks. Yeah. So you might be aware that Disney bought the Star Wars franchise and now we just have the Rise of Skywalker opening to uh really awful reviews <laughs> because it turns out when you get like a committee with a billion dollars together and like seven fucking venture capital funds to make a Star Wars movie, uh not always uh, great art is is produced out of that. But, you know, can you really even call it art at this point? Right. Mass market bullshit. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're going to divide this into three parts. And, you know, part one will kind of start and go through the biography of the man, Walt Disney himself. And, you know, parts two and three, maybe we'll focus more on the business of Disney, which has become, you know, one of the major media conglomerates in the United States and around the world. But, you know, the story of Walt Disney is like a guy drew a cartoon mouse, which would set in motion a chain of events, which would ultimately destroy a space sci-fi franchise created 10 years after his death. Yeah, I mean, it's like, imagine... Imagine... They fly now. Imagine fucking uh, Scott Adams of Dilbert fame ran a fucking... Sixty billion dollar media empire. You have to explain in this bio. We have to get a sense of the man who would go on to produce the vision that would make Steamboat Willie and Tron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but we'll, we'll get into all that because um, Walt Disney is a very 
fascinating character. You know, clearly he had uh, a creative talent, but he was a psychopath, as many creatives are. Uh, is a, uh, wildly anti-union, mm-hmm. um, at least modestly anti-Semitic, uh, affiliated with the American Bund, which was the American Nazi party in the lead up to World War II, uh, you know, uh, turned on basically all the animators who made him a millionaire uh, and denounced them to the House Un-American Committee because they uh, organized a union and he said they were all communist infiltrators for doing that. Um, you know what he said when they uh, walked out for the first time? Mm-hmm. What is that? A one-hour loop. What is that drop? It's from the trailer for that awful fucking movie. I mean, people have pointed it out, but you know, it's again. This is you know art by billion-dollar committee where there's. There are seven fucking jokes in Hollywood sure. that people are like, yeah, this this doesn't offend anybody. So right. this is how this is how the jokes work now. It's like the inverse of George Carlin's right. seven dirty words you can't say on TV. It's mm-hmm. the seven jokes we're only allowed to do. Number one being Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> I'm just imagining if you walk into the theater and like Darth Maul unsheaths the double lightsaber and then they go like, so that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess that's a thing now. Yeah. We've been able to reduce comedy down. Like sci- Disney scientists right, have right. reduced comedy down to like seven jokes. <laughs> and everything is just a combination of the, yeah. those seven. Baby Yoda trips and spills his mug and you hear in the background. So this is really complicated because... Uh, <laughs> I'm a socialist. <laughs> Han Solo's being lowered into the uh, the pit to uh, be frozen in carbonite, and Leia goes, I love you, and he goes, I mean, this is kind of an awkward time, because we can't... I mean, I want to say, I, 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 but I, I, I can't do anything about it right, right. now. Yeah. <laughs> Just a straight Woody Allen. Yeah. He walks in on, like, Darth Vader uh, force-choking somebody to death, and goes, oh, uh, I, uh, I, I guess I'll come back later. <laughs> 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 Yeah, a lot of those stock jokes really are just like distilled Woody Allen bits. Right. Yeah, everything is, you know, a watered down version of something pretty decent. Not to say I. I well, uh, yeah, the I, first time, yeah. Yeah, right, of course, right. Um, but I mean, it is. Uh, like, I remember when uh, Don Rickles died, and I don't know how you guys feel about Rickles, but I know most uh, white people I know, especially comics, love him. Especially the, the dirty people. Like, oh, Rickles is amazing. I didn't really think he was that funny, but I liked the racism. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's a very good point, Sean. Is that, like, for me, every old person in media was slightly racist. I think almost akin to Rickles is pretty good on, on the cuff riff racism. And so by the time I saw Rickles in his glory, I was like, I've seen a billion of these stupid pieces of shits. So uh, that is uh, akin to what's going on in Hollywood right now. We're seeing the same thing recycled over and over again. I mean, I don't know. We shouldn't really be shocked. Awkward. <laughs> Luke Skywalker being like, Leia is so hot. She's standing right behind me, isn't she? <laughs> Ah, it's the same ten fucking jokes, but you know, and, and we'll get to that. Uh, but you know, with they the fly now. They fly now. They fly now. the only thing I wish is I wish we got Kanye West saying that he's the next Walt Disney. That's the only rub <laughs> I wish we had. Walt Disney. I was just imagining like uh, when the French soldiers in World War II saw the Stucco dive bombers for the first time. They're like, they fly now. <laughs> <laughs> the Nazis fly now. They fly now. <laughs> 
Um, but so, you know, uh, this, uh, we're going to divide it again, three parts. Uh, this part one that you're listening to, we're going to talk about. This will about- be the original trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> three parts. And then we'll do prequels. Yes, precisely. <laughs> we're going to come back later for the prequels mm-hmm. uh, to talk we're about. we start Walt- at episode four for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> we should just have this be part four, part five yeah. and six behind no, the paywall. That's when we do George Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> We we do the prequels <laughs> and then we do the sequels and they're somehow worse than the prequels. Um, but yeah, so uh, on this part one, on this part one, we're gonna talk about the biography of Walt Disney, kind of life to death, and uh, you know we'll see if uh, if we don't quite get through it, uh, maybe we'll continue that in part two. But part two and three is mainly more gonna be focused on the company itself mm-hmm. because it is interesting where you know Walt does create this um, uh, multimedia empire within his lifetime, then it kind of falls apart, but it has since then reconsolidated into one of the what is it four or five major media companies in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, like uh, Disney, Disney Corp, the overall parent company, has a market capitalization of about two hundred and sixty-six billion. Jesus Christ! Yeah, it's fucking insane too. It's one of the largest in the world. Right? They, you know, they own ESPN, where like there's so much fucking money in that, and then you know now they have it, Disney Plus, it would take Star you, Wars. It would take you days to go through all of their holdings that matter to people. Right, right. You know how like if like you're like a busboy at a diner and you work your way up to an owner. To do that in the Disney fucking multiverse, you would need multiple lifetimes to go from like the guy that cleans up trash at Disneyland all the way to CEO of Disney, mm. going up through ABC and then ESPN, up through Fox and Marvel, working your way up through the fucking Disney corporate. Working your way through, working your way up as like a, a stock boy for uh, at um, some like a Chinese software company yeah, right, that is right. owned by a venture capital firm <laughs> that is owned by GoPro that mm-hmm. is owned by Disney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining. So you're being the janitor and you burst into the boardroom meeting and they're, they're like, security, stop him. He's like, no, no, you got to hear me out. They fly now. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And that janitor was Joss Whedon. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, we'll, we'll start this episode, though I actually, before we start the actual chronological biography of Walt Disney, one other thing I want to say that we'll get into more on parts two and three is um, there's something inherently creepy to me about children's entertainment companies under capitalism. Like, you know, if you uh, spend some time on Google or Bing looking at Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. uh, Dan oh, yeah. Schneider, <laughs> you might hear some allegations. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you might see some tweets that he uh, hid the replies to so people couldn't see, which is actually just draws more attention to the <laughs> accusations uh, against him. But, you know, there is something where uh, there is a lot of serious cases of pedophilia within the Disney Corporation. And Yeah, uh, Sean told me look into uh, labor union violations, and it started there. And then it morphed into the amount of people that have passed away in Disney locations and how they've covered it up. And then it literally went to pages upon pages of pedophilia involving Disney executives, Disney managers, Disney employees. And it made me physically sick. We've covered so much 
dirt on the stupid podcast. And this is the shit that made me fucking want to hurl at a certain point. I found so much Disney pedophile stuff that will be on later parts of our Disney. Yogi has trilogy. a legal pad that it's completely <laughs> full with dog-eared pages. Before you guys came here, I had fucking red yarn and three whiteboards set up. And boy, all the connections are there. Yeah, I don't know how you got uh, push pins into this aluminum trim in your apartment, but you pulled it off. It took a lot of work, but I got it. So it's it's one of those vans with uh, free candy written on it, but it's got jet engines on the side, and the kids go, they fly now? <laughs> they fly now? They fly now? They fly now? They fly now? Uh, this laughter hides literally thousands of kids being ra- raped. Well, it's fucked up, because, like, look, I... I yeah, I mean, there is something very, like, look, obviously children need entertainment, but when you get to... Do they? Yeah, well... Do they need entertainment, Sean? When you get to, like, the incentives of capitalism, which is to use entertainment to turn children into walking advertisements to beg their parents to buy them things, uh, which the parents will in turn buy them out of love for their child mm-hmm. that has been unknowingly conscripted into, you know, a uh, an advertisement... Um, there, there's that element of it. And then there's just the fact that it's like, if you are a shady fucking person, usually a dude, and you are involved in wow, children's... sex as much? Yeah. You are involved in children's entertainment. That is a good way to gain access to children. Um, and uh, Walt Disney himself, as far as I know, was not directly linked to pedophilia, but the corporate entity he set up seems to basically operate as a giant Epstein conspiracy. He did have, uh, there are a lot of parallels in his life to Michael Jackson. Mm. <laughs> it's just that there hasn't been the HBO documentary or the lawsuits. But to kind of start from the beginning of, you know, the Walt Disney story, um, uh, we watched this uh, PBS documentary, The American Experience. They do bios on various uh, prominent people in U.S. history. They, they have like, what is it, a three hour, four hour one on Walt Disney that we watched that was, you know, it was pretty good, though. It hid some of the darker stuff, but uh, overall a good, uh, good overview. Yeah, Ford, for some reason, got a much harder lashing on American experience, but they both, they both followed the same trajectory where it's like, uh, you know, a hardworking farm boy goes into the city with an idea, works his way in, makes it big, and then slowly becomes more bitter and detached from reality Mm -hmm. and dies trying to build out an idealized version of his childhood. Mm. Man, it's crazy how every fucking billionaire of that era turns into like a Howard Hughes type. Every single one at some point just becomes... Do you have an example of another one? Howard Hughes? (laughs) (laughs) Um... No, yeah, that's what that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to think though, but I mean, like you know, it's like they go from like I'm a man that's trying to help the world to I'm peeing in bottles, watching highlights of my life at some point. Yeah, yeah. Like Henry Ford, like uh, Walt Disney built Disneyland, and Henry Ford kind of did the same thing, but without like Ford inviting Bill. without inviting people. Well, yeah, he he built it. You remember he built his own little Disneyland in his old hometown and made it into this idealized Mm -hmm. uh, turn-of-the-century town, which is exactly what Disneyland, uh, or at least the the main hometown stretch of Disneyland, is meant to be. Yeah, Disneyland is like, I mean, first of all, we'll talk about this more on parts two and three, but Disneyland and Disney World operate as company towns, which is why you constantly hear about these labor disputes, because they all get carve-outs from local government to be like, yeah, you can just be like this fucking quasi-fascist corporate (laughs) state within uh, operating within these areas. Around Um, the world. Shanghai. 
Yeah, and you know, even within Walt Disney's vision, it was this fucking psychopath who uh, viewed his employees as his children and uh, felt it was a betrayal when they unionized and struck against him in 1941, Mm -hmm. and he never got over that. So he sets up Disney World as this like idyllic place where there's no unions and no um, homelessness (laughs) and shit, Uh, and that's carried on to the present day. And they try to make, in a lot of biographical takes I was reading for this research, they try to make it out, the more, like, the more kid glove ones, mm-hmm. the main way they protect him is by saying, that, oh, he's a product of his own time, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he's actually no worse in his uh, racism. Right, right, right. They can't track or, your fingerprints, yeah, use kid gloves. Yeah, than an average person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great cop-out to be like, well, I mean, we don't know exactly how people at the time weren't always saying the N-word. <laughs> Why'd you go with Cosby for that one? I just felt well, like the only difference with him is he ended up being a millionaire and uh, a later a billionaire. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he had the power to like destabilize unions and uh, not allow black people to work at Disney World for a while, right. or or at least to abhor it mm-hmm. publicly. And like, oh, it'll be your word against mine, and my lawyers will destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, to uh, you know Palmer's point about uh, the Ford getting a bit more of a, a beatdown in the dock, it's like, well, the outcome product of Disney's designs are making kids happy. So to be against that on principle is like, you know, just seems shitty, even though, you know, one of the main reasons why I, I, I push hard for this episode was because I saw the amount of people that were posting about Disney Plus, and I was like, these fucking mooks don't understand they're fucking licking the dick of Big Brother and it just made me so goddamn mad. I'm yeah. gonna take this motherfucker Every down a peg. fucking Baby Yoda meme. I had to mute Baby Yoda on Twitter and you can't mute the fucking picture. Sure. Like, it's... <laughs> oh, facial, look. facial recognition isn't that advanced yet. <laughs> I know. It, it's like, look, it's the thing that uh, was made in a laboratory to trigger your... Um, you know, your your deep sense of affection for cute things so that you don't kill your baby. Uh, it's that thing that was specifically engineered to get clicks and everyone's just fucking eating it up. Mm-hmm. But it's actually 50 years old, so he's not really a baby. <laughs> fucking idiots. But, you know, they modeled that on like hundreds of live Honduran children that they kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were alive when the kidnapped them. Yes. Well... <laughs> And then they were killed for trademark infringement for looking like Baby Yoda. <laughs> Look, it's the law. And it, well, and again, one more thing we'll talk about more on parts two and three is copyright law in this country in particular benefits Disney because uh, when trademarks were set up by the first U.S. Congress in mm-hmm. 1789, you had a 14-year trademark of intellectual property, right. which I think is perfectly fair. You think of an idea, you've got 14 years to make money off yeah. it, and then it goes into the public domain. Star Wars should be in the public domain. Mickey Mouse should be in the public domain. But what has happened is, you know, Disney, among other corporations, is heavily lobbied to make it so that they can just have, you know, an idea that some dead person came up with and then seek rent off it forever yep. because they're the only one who can use this idea a dead person came up with right like they've they've made characters that are based off fables that existed for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and then they now own the copyright of their version of it but that's the version most people know now because it's the most modern version mm-hmm. so they own Cinderella even though you could make a Cinderella that's like 
you know, black or something, and it'd be like, this is Cinderella, and people would be like, I mean, it's not, it's not the Disney Cinderella. It's, <laughs> right. It's like fucking trying to make a new Band-Aid, and people being like, well, that's not, it's not, it's a medical adhesive that's not as good, you know, it's fucking <laughs> bullshit. Well, you know, there, there are just so many smart writers out there who, you know, let's just take the Star Wars franchise, which well, I think the original trilogy is great, and there are a lot of I smart... <laughs> There are a lot of smart writers who could do very cool things with that IP, but instead, you know, this multi-billion dollar corporation owns it, and they write it by committee, so we get they fly now. And you just have to accept that, because this is the fucking law. And it's stupid as hell, and you know, if anybody has a problem with intellectual property expiring after 14 years, just create some new shit. It only benefits society to say that stale old ideas pass into the public domain, mm-hmm. and if you got a problem with that, just think of something new. And I, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but Sean said the word IP, and that's kind of like my trigger word today, but fucking Kumail Nanjiani's <laughs> fucking buff bitch ass getting fucking goddamn cut to be a, a Avenger or whatever the fuck he's in the new Marvel movie, yeah. doesn't make any fucking sense. We're going to take a comedian that's pudgy and force him to spend a year plus of his life to look like a superhero, because if, if we don't people might not watch the movie he's in not to fucking discount the fact that every movie he's in franchise dies a fucking horrible death you can't go from lego batman to lego ninjago and see that fucking die and not be like hey maybe kunimail nanjiani's a part of the reason why that movie fucking sucks but the reality is is that they could make a person he is actually the reason that i was like oh man there's a new twilight zone and then the very first sequence is him being a failed stand-up comedian and i'm like do not care. <laughs> Could not. I don't need to see. I mean, he's probably going to be like a struggling open micer uh, right. who moonlights as uh, a cat man. Yo, but like this would be like, you know, Apple wanting to do a commercial with Taylor Swift writing a jingle for it. They want her in the commercial to be like, I don't know, a biochemist and like, hey, Taylor, would you mind getting a fucking doctorate in, at Harvard for this commercial? And her being like, I don't want to spend six years of my life in college. It's like, we'll give you half a billion dollars. And you're like, well. Looks like Taylor Swift is going to MIT now. Like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. And the notion that we're this goddamn committed to a corporation choosing what we watch or don't watch. and What, what, what hero is he playing? Who gives a fuck is the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> Nobody knows or gives a shit. Uh, I have no idea what he plays. But mm. if you look at the comic book, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it's going to work. He plays Wins the Lantern. <laughs> I do just like that Kumail getting buff is the perfect story uh, to set off all of Yogi's triggers. (laughs) A Pakistani hack becoming buff is literally all three of my goddamn fucking... This guy sucks! Now people like him because he's buff? Name one of his jokes you like. That's what I thought. Hindu nationalism intensifies. (laughs) (laughs) Modi was right. (laughs) Just do the heroin one was pretty good. That's it. Yeah, the cheese one's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Yogi like sees the picture and is like, you know what, you guys, I've, I'm reconsidering this citizenship bill. I think Modi has a lot of good ideas, and we have to keep these people out of our country. No, I mean, you know, regardless of we my... can't let them in. They're, they're too strong. <laughs> regardless of my opinion on uh, Karachi-born uh, Pakistani comedian uh, uh, Kumail Nanjiani... Pedophile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. A corporation that protects pedophiles now pays Kumail Nanjiani oh, to work out. Right. So you might be like, oh, you can't blame Kumail for taking, you know, fucking rape money. Yeah, yes, I can. Anyway, we're, I, yeah. we've done nearly 30 minutes of me ranting about this. And uh, we said we'd start with this episode with Walt Disney's bio, which we've done absolutely zero of so I've, far. Because of Kumail Nanjiani, I've heard... 
That's awesome, dude. In an Urdu accent, more than I've heard actual Urdu. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking Men in Black movie that came out, his ass was a fucking voice in that. The uh, the bullshit game that he did for Clueless Gamer, his ass was a voice in that. Kumail Nanjiani is creative death. The fact that he had an Oscar nomination is only because fucking liberal white uh, uh, Oscar voters are sympathetic to brown victims, and, and I'm fucking tired of it. Taking Kumail into the Disney back room, like, Kumail, we'll make you buff. But the first question is, can you keep a secret? <laughs> <laughs> now you're, now you're going to see something with some Honduran children. <laughs> and that will determine whether or not we make you buff. They fly now. <laughs> they shoot they the kids fly? out of the cannon and then they say that. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, all right. Well, so we'll start uh, the chronological bio of Walt Disney, the man himself that set in motion all of these different chains of events that we're all still feeling the impact of today. Uh, it all starts in Chicago, Illinois, 1901. He's born in Chicago, Illinois. Um, also it, where Kumail Nanjiani started doing stand-up. So mm. Chicago is the center of uh, Illinois. I'm <laughs> just fucking mad about dumb shit now. All right, John, I apologize. Go no, let's let him say the ass. I think it's funnier. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but so he, uh, apparently when he's a child, uh, he's born in Chicago. When he's a child, the family moves to, uh, his uncle owned a farm at uh, Marceline, Missouri. It was kind of like a small town in Missouri. And um, Walt Disney, you know, we talked about how, you know, Henry Ford and Walt Disney spent their later life trying to recreate their childhood. Mm -hmm. So Walt Disney grows up on this farm when he's a young child and he has all this nostalgia for it because, you know, being with the animals, being near nature and all that bullshit. One of the only Americans with fond memories of Missouri. (laughs) Um, and, and then, uh, so he grows up on this farm initially. Apparently they sell it, uh, later in 1911 when Walt Disney is 10 years old. Uh, he, they moved to Kansas city, Missouri. And, um, just according to Wikipedia, <clears throat> just according to Wikipedia, Walt Disney's father, Elias, uh, purchased a newspaper delivery route for the Kansas city star and Kansas city times. So another billionaire Can with a paper boy. route. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, again, He's just a worker. Yeah, quoting from Wiki, uh, Disney, uh, Walt Disney and his brother Roy uh, woke up at 4.30 every morning to deliver the times before school and repeat it the round for the evening star after school. The schedule was exhausting, and Disney often received poor grades after falling asleep in class, but he continued his paper route for more than six years. I really love how billionaires skirt the whole being good at school thing sometimes, because it, like, it... It only qualifies anyone that's bad at school for the wrong reasons. Because <laughs> I certainly remember being like bad at school for various reasons, but some of it was my own laziness. And being like, well, Einstein was bad at school, so I'll be okay. You know what I will say? He was actually very good at school. <laughs> not, not, oh, according yeah. to the, not according to the few books I read at that time, <laughs> but clearly I didn't finish them. <laughs> yeah, I, Einstein is at one point, he's like, this shit is just a myth. I was, I was fucking running shit oh, really? in math class. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Mastered calculus when he was like 12 or something. He would also expose his robe to women as a, as a hit-on move. Hmm. That's oh, cool. Nice. Cancel Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go back to the paper route thing. I think what I've learned doing this podcast is if you were to go back in time to the start of the 20th mm-hmm, century mm-hmm. and spend 50 years murdering every paper boy you saw, <laughs> you would actually take out half of the most billion <laughs> evil billionaires in existence. No. Now, wait. So he had a paper route. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know like what time frame that was? 
this is around 1911, before 19... World War One. Okay, so that was when uh, a couple of brothers in Kitty Hawk uh, were starting their thing, right? Uh, yes, I guess so. So he probably one of the headlines um, that he was delivering. <laughs> they fly now. They fly. <laughs> Murder. God. Uh, that was found on the piece of paper uh, that he Wright left at brothers. his residence when he died. Yeah. That was his like the, the Wright brothers, like three employees, <laughs> are saying that <laughs> as he flies for like 30 seconds. Right, right. Orville, Wilbur. They fly now. Yeah, if you go to the uh, um, the Rise of Skywalker on the credits, it has Walt Disney as a writer <laughs> because he's the one who contributed that line. You know, the thing you're mentioning about paper boys and how they sometimes end up becoming billionaires. I was watching a thing on uh, Dame Dash, uh, Jay-Z's uh, Mad Dog, and uh, mm-hmm. Dame Dash talks about as a kid he had more money than some of the adults he was growing up around, and it made him feel like like they ain't shit. So the like added financial... Uh, ego that you get from making a couple of dollars a week or whatever, having a paper route, gives you a fucking emboldened ego to be like, man, fuck everything. I'm the shit. <laughs> and at a young enough age, that's like, that's poison. I mean, like, it can turn you into an egomaniac, I think. Mm-hmm. Or he does. Yeah, and you know, again, it should be noted, like, uh, so his dad, Walt Disney's dad, has all these various small businesses. Apparently, most of them fail. That's actually why I think that um, we should just have a uh, permanent group of families that stay wealthy, and then oh uh, really? Yeah. So that way you never have someone like working their way from the top and getting a big ego about it. You just have a permanent aristocracy, right, right, right. And I think that's the <laughs> ideal society. Okay, just cap it yeah. at like yeah. fifty rich families or yeah. something. Yeah. As long as I'm one of those families, I like this plan. <laughs> okay. Just construct like a rich ghetto. <laughs> you just just stay. Just stay in your part right, right, of the right. town. <laughs> yeah. It will be awkward. Attract their movements. Yeah. <laughs> it will be awkward when we start licensing grub stakers and have to reverse ourselves on this intellectual property <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, look, you guys, uh, I know it's been 70 years, but we need that grub stakers watch money. <laughs> so we will come and kill you if you try to po- bootleg it. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so um, he has this paper route. Apparently, uh, in 1917, this is Walt is 17 years old or 16 years old. Uh, his dad buys uh, part ownership in a Chicago jelly producer, the Ozell Company, <laughs> and the family moves back to Chicago in 1917. So his dad is the co-owner of a jelly factory, and um, it's that, like jams and jellies. We're talking about jelly, yeah. Mm. I think is this like you know spread for sure. toast and sense. this kind of bullshit. I just want to make sure it wasn't like jelly beans or yeah. gelatin or you know. Well, possibly gelatin. I mean, it's not worse, but it's intri- intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is. Uh, he got his first animation experience drawing the horses <laughs> as his dad murdered them. <laughs> Do we know much about his dad beyond uh, his life when his son was alive? Uh, I mean, according to the American Experience uh, documentary, his dad was kind of a stern, withholding father who didn't believe in the Disney Corporation, thought he should get a real job. Um, And, you know, because his dad, like we said, he uh, had this paper route. He was working on his uncle's farm. He had this co-ownership in this jelly factory, which would later fail. So his dad had a bunch of businesses fail, and that kind of, like, broke his spirit and he took that out on his son, and you know Walt had a lot of anxiety about uh, business failure and not wanting to end up like his father and this kind of shit. 
Yeah, apparently his his dad, like when they first started Disney and they had a little bit of success, he was like, yeah, that's not going to last. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's sort of why Disney had kind of a, uh, a reputation, at least around the people that he knew best and earlier in his career before um, he became rich and bitter. He, he was known as a very kind of like childlike um, uh, figure. Uh, very playful, and a lot of people figure he's kind of like a, a, a rebellion against his dad in that way. Right, because his dad was so stern and strict and all that bullshit. Um, Do you guys buy into that? You guys think that if your parents are strict, you end up becoming more friendly? Not necessarily, but I think it's a possible reaction. It, I mean, it's it's he it, it's uh, like I said, there are actually like parallels with Michael Jackson, where you have kind of the Peter Pan. Sure, the Joe uh, Jackson beating up Michael. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like you know, and all of the raped children. Yes. Yeah, that yes. is a parallel. Yeah, <laughs> that is a parallel. And we don't know, but uh, uh, Walt Disney's skin, now black. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so uh, he, apparently, as far as art uh, training, Walt Disney spends a few months at art school in Chicago. He takes a court, uh, course at the Kansas City Art School. So he does get a bit of, you know, cartooning training um, initially. But um uh, when he's less than 18 years old, he wants to enlist in World War One. Around 1917, the United States enters World War One, uh, and, you know, gives a generation PTSD to keep the British Empire going for another 20 <laughs> years. Um, but so Walt, he wants to go over there, but he's actually too young to enlist. So apparently he forges a birth certificate, and he's able, Walt Disney is able to enlist in the Red Cross, where he's an ambulance driver, but he gets sent over in September 1918. So by the time he makes it to France, the November armistice is signed. So he doesn't see any combat. He just kind of drives an ambulance around for a few months at the end of the war after the shit's all over. And then he comes back in 1919. Um, with, according to American experience, he had uh, banked $500 uh, in 1919 money, and uh, he had a job waiting for him at his father's Chicago Jelly Factory. Stephen, how much is 500 in 1919? What do we got there? Oh, look it up. In 2019 dollars, that is $600. But so, Walt, he works at his father's Jelly Factory for a bit, but, you know, he doesn't want that life for himself, so he actually moves back out to Kansas City. Uh, he moves into a house with uh, his two two of his older brothers, and he gets a job as a commercial artist for a local ad company, uh, which is apparently a well-paying job. You know, he was like a little cartoonist, and he would do these, you know, cartoons for various advertisements in the uh, uh, roaring 20s. So the calculator I use doesn't go back to, to oh, really? that far. But uh, let's see, in 1923, wait, what, what year is this? 1919? Mm-hmm. 1919? Oh, wait. 100 years ago. They fly now! It's about $8,000. Jeez. Ah, that's more than today. I thought it was. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hmm. He's a young man. Yeah. Pretty normal. How old is he in this, yeah. Sean? Uh, he's, 20 years old? Yeah, he's like 18 when he gets back <sighs> from World War One. Yeah. Eight grand, tw- 20 years old. It's just hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, no, I mean, he has like a fair bit of savings. He works at his dad's jelly factory for a minute, but then he goes out to Kansas City, uh, moves in with his brothers, and the job as a, a commercial artist for a local ad company was, well... I found a gold watch in a Jerry's body! <laughs> <laughs> what you do is you go out in the where the trenches you you go out in, in no man's land after the war's over and you look for the the corpses that kind of shine in the sun and that's where you find the wedding rings 
the only ones who got shell shock are weak. <laughs> <laughs> no one thinks to look in the teeth, but there's gold there. Uh, but so this is a Walt Disney gets a well-paying job at this local ad company. Uh, he's able to afford, you know, uh, restaurants, uh, and, but he also is able to make nightly trips to the local movie houses. This is 1919, 1920, around this time. And it's really when he starts making these night, almost nightly trips to the movie houses that he really gets interested in animation. Because, you know, around this time, the way it would work is you would go to the movie theater, they would have the feature film, but before the feature film, they would have a newsreel, and they would often, uh, sometimes a short film, and often an animated cartoon or two. Such as the classic, uh, Man Looks Through Door. Uh, but yeah, so he's going to the theater every night. He really gets into this stuff and, you know, he's working at the ad company is paying him well, but it's, you know, not very creatively fulfilling to kind of do what other people tell you. So the way, uh, the American experience documentary tells the story is he actually goes to the public library and he gets books on, um, uh, he gets the book human figures in motion by Edward, uh, um, and he gets also some books on animation and filmmaking. And so he just kind of goes to the public library on nights and weekends, and he learns the basics just from library books, which, again, you know, I, well, I don't have to tell you if you're listening to this that libraries <laughs> are a good thing. But, uh, these libraries are good. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, these these myths of these self-made men, it's, again, where did they get the inspiration? But they, they accidentally aided a child of the wealthy, so... <laughs> Shut them down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, picked up an animation book from uh, the Brooklyn Public, Public Library that was written by a guy who worked on Pinocchio. And I'm realizing now that it was like, oh, this is probably a guy who had to go on strike. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Write this like, book. As a product yeah. of like Disney doing this shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the uh, striking animators uh, during the Disney strike, some of them had... Um, uh, signs with Pinocchio on them oh, really? said like yeah. no strings on me or something like yeah, that. Yeah I gotta say I saw some of the protest footage of the animators and they had some of the best protest signs. Yeah yeah. <laughs> it is true. Yeah they had know? all their signs would line up to make like one long animal. It's oh, pretty yeah. neat. I mean like don't have people that are very creative protest what you're doing because mm-hmm. you're gonna get wrecked in the sign business. Yeah, uh, labor disputes with visual artists are very difficult for management. <laughs> just just from a PR perspective. This is why everything's graphic They now. just keep going viral. <laughs> it's very hard to deal with, that kind of sign game. <laughs> this is literally my job, and you're making me go out on the street and make signs against you. Very dangerous. Um, but so, yeah, so he's uh, he kind of learns... From these library books, uh, the basics, which at this time is, you know, uh, to make a basic animation, you might have done this in school when you were growing up, uh, each frame of this animation is like an individual um, uh, piece of white linen paper, and these are put on pegs, and you shoot one frame at a time to create the illusion of motion. Um, I think it's 24 frames per second is the standard at the time. might have even been a little less than that. So what Walt Disney is doing is he's working at this ad company, but on nights and weekends he starts he uh, he borrows a film camera from his boss mm-hmm. at the ad company, who apparently has one, and he starts shooting his own cartoons. Uh, he works on them, you know, in his free time, but he's able to make a few of these cartoons, which he actually sells to a local Kansas City 
theater chain. These are called the Newman's uh, Newman Laughograms, and you can watch them on YouTube. Just very basic uh, cartoons. Right. Um, and so he's he's selling some of these, and he makes some money doing it. But he also gets his first taste of local celebrity because mm-hmm. you know everybody in Kansas City they go to the theater, they see his fucking cartoons. Yeah, I mean it is one of those things where you got to think about how much a movie would cost in that era. And so to be like, uh, we need you know an extra you know three minutes worth of content. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy's gonna sell us a cartoon. I will pay him anything. It doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. And so it just was a easy medi- It was an easy risk to take on because it's just a medium that you want to pay into because it's just so much cheaper than the movies themselves mm-hmm. and uh, again according to American experience at the age of 20 he's uh, doing this enough that he has enough money saved up he quits his day job at the ad company and he starts uh, Laughograms Incorporated uh, he hires four animators he hires a salesman and he hires a business manager so he's got enough money by this point to start his own business and f- full-time try to sell these fucking short cartoons to local theaters. And, you know, that's what he's doing. His parents moved to Kansas City because the Jelly Factory failed. They live with him for a bit. Uh, he gets a contract for uh, six animated shorts, but uh, the distributor shifts him, stiffs him at the time. And uh, then he... He has this idea to save his little studio by creating what's called uh, Alice in Cartoon Land, which is another kind of, to me, creepy thing that he does, which is an animated short with like this little girl filmed as like a real participant in it, um, where they actually, he, he bets this entire studio on uh, this cartoon of this little girl interacting with the cartoon r- right. world. And um, it's completed, but the studio still goes bankrupt by the time it's completed. In in 1923, his first company goes bankrupt. Right. The so in- I'm I'm watching the uh, Newman's laughograms now. Mm-hmm. They suck. <laughs> with the innovation with uh, not those, but the things that Sean was talking about just now was that most things were cartoons in reality, but this one was the flip cool because it was someone that was in reality in a cartoon. But so, you know, um, his Laughograms Incorporated company goes bankrupt in 1923, and Walt Disney, he still has enough money to buy himself a first-class train ticket to Los Angeles. Nice. Because uh, essentially what he thinks is, all right, well, I failed as an animator, but now I'm going to go out to Hollywood and be a director. Right. Like, he wants to leave cartoons behind him, but he still wants to, you know, be in show business. It is the move that uh, some of the billionaires we've covered do, which is that when a business enterprise fails, you go to your next thing and go, hey, listen, this thing I used to do, pretty cool. Not around anymore, but uh, pretty, you could invest in it. He has enough money to uproot and just totally move like that. Yeah. Well, again, it's like a thing we've talked about ad nauseum is... Uh, you know, you, you're you're kind of a failed stand-up in Seattle, and then you uproot, you move mm-hmm. to New York, and like, I'm going to be a podcaster <laughs> now. That's right. You use the N-word on stage, and you go, you know what? I got to get out of this town. Yeah, I mean, just people who uh, have the money and the resources to fail and then buy themselves a first-class ticket to Los Angeles, where, you know, uh, Walt Disney and so many American billionaires will emphasize the poverty of their upbringing story. You know, he'll say, I grew up on a farm, traditional, uh, you know, um, hand-to-mouth Americana existence, but clearly this guy had enough money to fucking not only hire six people, who, another thing we should just mention here is Walt Disney... Well, he didn't spend much money hiring those six people. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, yeah. So he had the money to fail and then buy himself a ticket and then live in Los Angeles and do all right, which we'll get to. But another thing we should just mention here is Walt Disney as an animator was kind of mediocre. Like, yeah. uh, so it was um, actually the people he hires in Kansas City who really create um, what will become his his best products as far as animation goes. Yeah, he gets his uh, loyal crew to make sure that they build the genius that is what he will be known for. But him as his own entity, not that good. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the common thread amongst uh, the most mythologized billionaires, mm-hmm. the ones who are uh, portrayed as the, quote, singular genius, is just very early on. They, the person themselves isn't actually that much that, you know, they're clever, but they're not like a singular genius with a vision. They just can get enough really talented people around them and then not pay them as much as they're really worth, <laughs> um, but still manage to exert a level of control over them that they can take credit for their work and ideas. Mm-hmm. Right and uh, build a name for themselves and a mythology around themselves. Right, so uh, Byworks, uh, that's his name. Um, he was uh, one of Walt Disney's earliest Kansas City animators who would come with him to Los Angeles right. and was really the person who drew Mickey Mouse. You know, Walt Disney did the voice and they kind of collaboratively came up with the idea, but this guy, uh, Byworks, was the animator who made Disney and then later on they would hire more and more animators. But it is something, in particular with the creative field, where they even talk about this in American Experience, Walt Disney is able to sell very well to these people, hey, we're making art here, we're making magic. Mm-hmm. And if you are making art and making magic, you know, that's uh, it's a fulfilling enough experience that you're kind of willing to work nights and weekends doing it and kind of willing to let somebody violate labor laws and, you know, uh, take the lion's share of the profits that come from it because you feel creatively fulfilled doing such a thing. So, And we're in it together, you know, we're all only going up. <laughs> So the creative fields are, uh, as we would not know, doing stand-up comedy, rife for exploitation. <laughs> Wait, you said uh, Disney did the voice for Mickey originally? Originally for really? Mickey Mouse. I didn't know that. Walt Dis- did the voice. I, I remember with the Steamboat Willie, I don't know if we're there yet in, in our story necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, all of the sound had to be done in one sh- one take. So the sound effects, the music, and the uh, voices had to be done, recorded at the same time because they couldn't do multi-track recordings. Well, he couldn't. He, I don't. I don't think there was any. Uh, I haven't seen all of Steamboat Willie, but from what I can tell, there isn't any. There's whistling, but there isn't. No, there's there's sound effects. There's the train noise, and there's like. No, but I mean, there's no like voice. There's no dialogue. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but apparently, Walt Disney. Yeah, he did Mickey, and it was his. Um, this is something they covered well also in the American experience was that he, he said it was his alter ego. And so then he would like have conversations with himself where he's like, hey, how's it going, Walt? <laughs> oh, you know, it's going OK. <laughs> yeah, this week's been pretty rough. We're going to show The rest of his staff is just in the corner, like, cower- like <laughs> yeah. afraid, right, but right. fascinated. Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to scold you, but Mickey might say something about your work this week. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's let's definitely keep this segment in because if they sue us for calling Walt Disney a pedophile, we're gonna mm. need this. <laughs> he talked to himself as the mouse, and you're telling me he didn't molest children, allegedly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, he moves to Los Angeles. Walt Disney does, and um, his brother, his older brother Roy, uh, who we'll talk about a bit more, had also moved to Los Angeles for health reasons. So his his brother Roy is out there in L.A. selling vacuums, and he originally tells Walt like, "Hey, just you know, let's get us get a square job selling vacuums." 
and Walt like spends months trying to get a, a theater job, trying to work his way into the movie studios, and he doesn't really have success. So he's almost at the point where he'll go, all right, I'll sell vacuums with with my brother. But actually what happens is that um, that cartoon that he managed to make uh, before uh, his previous company went bankrupt, the um, uh, Alice's Wonderland. Mm. Alice Car- in Cartoon Land. Alice in Cartoon Land. Uh, so that actually gets seen by an L.A. distributor, a cartoon distributor named Margaret Winkler. Right. Uh, or, sorry, a New York uh, cartoon distrib- distributor named Margaret Winkler sees that one uh, and gets in touch with Walt about Alice in Cartoon Land. Um, and uh, she offers him $1,500 per episode for 12 short cartoons. Right. So Walt, you know, all of a sudden, even though his company went under, he has still this uh, intellectual property that he can sell to her and use as a highlight reel and then get a contract to, like, if you can make me 12 more of these, I will give you $1,500 a piece. What year is this, roughly? Uh, this is probably 23, 24, 1924, around that time. So he's, like, mid-20s at this point, and he's making 1500 an episode? Well, the first thing he has to do is he convinces his brother Roy to go into business with him. And this is actually pretty mm-hmm. important because his previous company, Roy, was not involved in. Mm-hmm. And Roy is um, kind of, he, he ends up handling most all the financial a- uh, mm-hmm. side yeah, of yeah. Disney. Because, you know, Walt is more of like an all-over-the-place creative right. type, whereas Roy does actually put it on right. sound the financial. So yeah. w- with this deal, in today's dollars, he's making about 20000 per episode. <laughs> I don't know what his costs are. Yeah. So this is what his studio is getting. Right, so right. So he has to pay his employees and whatnot. Well, I feel like uh, at this time, because he's underpaying everyone and kind of just making shit happen, I don't know if he's keeping all the money. But he's certainly spending it on first-class train tickets. And it's like, buddy, fucking go coach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, so, and, and he also gets uh, Ub Iwerks, we mentioned. Uh, he can uh, Walt convinces him to move from Kansas City to Los Angeles. He hires him to be the, the top animator, who, again, is much more skilled at the actual business of animation than Walt is. Um, and he hires some of the old Kansas City crew to move to L.A. I don't know. I'm watching uh, one of these laughograms, and there's uh, an old man in a in a picture, and he's looking left and right, and then there's a cat with a gun shooting dough. <laughs> and uh, it's literally uh, a minute of that just going between the cat shooting dough and then the old man looking left and right out of a picture frame, and then he's laughing, and the cat shooting dough again. Sure, and, is, it, uh, yeah, is it a cat? Is it not Oswald? You know, no, Oswald no, this is pre-Oswald. Pre- yeah. yeah. The reason Oswald's happened is because this woman that uh, Sean's talking about marries some dude, and he takes over the, the contract to pay Disney for these cartoons, and he's like, I don't like this cat shit. I want a fucking rabbit. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll cause, get... Because Felix, Felix the cat was the big thing, and so everyone was doing cats, and then they were like, let's stop doing cats. Uh, Taylor Swift didn't get that message. <laughs> Right. So, you know, like Walt uh, Disney Company is selling um, these little shorts that, again, they're showing at the start of movie theaters. But there are also competing cartoons, which include Felix the Cat, which we'll uh, get to in a second here. Um, But so, you know, Walt actually is uh, able with this contract from Margaret Winkler to, you know, hire his old Kansas City animators, hire some locals. He has about a dozen employees by 1925. Um, and in 1925, he gets married to his wife, Lillian, who was an inker, what's called an inker at his company, where the only jobs at his studio at this time and for most of his studio's existence, uh, as long as he's alive, for women are inkers, where, you know, the men will do the drawings and then the women will ink in the drawings because, you know, again, you need 
uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of frames to make an actual animation. So there's a lot of tedious grunt work uh, in that. And Walt, throughout his entire life, would really look down on everybody who does this grunt work, whereas he just thinks, you know, the actual original illustrators are the creatives. I mean, Lenny Starr is an anchor, but she didn't end up inking, if you know what I mean, huh? Um, but so she did some more grunt work if you know what I mean Louie's his wife oh <laughs> what are you not paying attention to the show we do <laughs> I, I was I was, I was <laughs> don't answer that honestly <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for a three minute well, how long are these anyway yeah, usually about three, three minutes, minutes? Yeah. so that's like 4,300 frames Jesus really yeah, yeah. Holy at, fuck. at 124 for a second right so what? That's fucking nuts. Well, there were like women who were just losing their eyesight making Snow White. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when it, like inking became even more uh, crucial once everything became colorized. Right, right. Um, and so mm. uh, women who were just seen as doing menial labor were, you know, losing their eyesight, scraping together pennies because it was the Great Depression. And right, because like, Snow White comes out like 1937, I think. So yeah, it's like. I don't know how long they spent developing that movie, but yeah, it is right, right, right after the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, there was even a, a story of one woman who her uh, she had a kid or a couple of kids, and then her husband ran off and um, just I don't know to look for work because he didn't want to support the family mm-hmm. in the Depression, and so she was uh, not eating her lunches so that she could save food to bring home to her kids and like passed out during a break once. Sure, yeah. Like, that's how hard they were working them. And it's like, if you, if, if you say it, like, if she went on to become a Walt Disney, like, that would be the horrible tale of hardship. Right, right. That, that she had to overcome. But instead, it's like, well, that was the cost of uh, Walt Disney doing business. <laughs> like, it's just a side story to, like, his path to greatness. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, that's a story we know. There's probably a countless amount of tales of people oh, yeah. that just suffered horrendously to make it so that we have fucking snow white <laughs> yeah <laughs> right and you know we'll, we'll get to all that but it like those stories are exactly why in 1941 there would be the disney strike which really changes the trajectory of the company and of walt disney's life but it was something where um uh according to uh, various sources i found up until about 1936 he would actually walt disney would cut the animators in on about 20% of the profits as like a bonus. But in 1936, he stops this practice. And then, you know, by the late thirties, early forties, there is huge wage disparity in his company where he, again, he thinks all these anchors and people, uh, are just grunts or anybody can do that shit. Who cares? So they are making, you know, like $12 a week, whereas his highest paid animators are making $300 a week and he's making, you know, a thousand, a thousand five hundred dollars a week in, um, uh, uh, contemporary money. So there is huge wage disparity uh, eventually in his company. Um, but even before we get to all that, by 1926, they're making these Alice uh, shorts, Alice in Cartoon Land. Um, they're making a new one every 16 days at the start of 1926. So they're, they're making good money doing that. And around the same time, they, uh, they changed the name from Disney Brothers Studio to Walt Disney Studio. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I guess now that we know it, it's more memorable. But it is kind of dickish to... Uh, call Apparently, the way it worked was Walt just took his brother aside and said, Yeah, so we're changing the name from, Walt, from Disney Brothers to Walt Disney Studios. Yeah, like clearly 
uh, you know, megalomaniacal personality. Mm. Who's older, Roy or Walt? Do we know? Roy. Yeah, Roy's the older brother. Oh, man. Dude, just, just getting cucked cut. out of the name by your younger <laughs> brother. Cut hard. Apparently, like, Roy was, uh, well, I mean, uh, he, was, he was the much more buttoned-down guy, but got kind of a thrill from, like, Walt's antics. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, he, I can see that. That makes sense. You kind of follow him around in these right, things. Right, right, right. Even <laughs> hey, though Walt, Walt was... Show up at the club yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. Where are the bitches at? <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand the uh, aesthetic of... Um, Hey, little bro, go do this crazy shit. <laughs> Fuck it, I will. <laughs> I was like the square, like, oh, Walt, you can't kidnap those Honduran children. <laughs> Watch me, bro. Whoa! <laughs> oh, I own the mayor. You can't touch me. He's <laughs> just... He, uh, yeah, Roy goes to the studio, and he tells him that he's playing with the Honduran kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's like, uh, I don't think you can do that. He's like, I can't. <laughs> oh, I am the law. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am the one that knocks. Who? Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like we were saying, they're they're making this new Alice short, car, uh, Alice in Cartoon Land every sixteen days or so. But Felix the Cat is their main competitor as far as, you know, other cartoons. And Walt would apparently go and watch all the competition and study all the competition. So like Masayoshi-san. He's the, got all of his competitors' products in his office. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but, yes, yeah, so uh, he uh, creates Felix, or sorry, he creates Oswald the Rabbit, or Walt Disney's studio comes up with Oswald the Rabbit. This is their competition to Felix the Cat. Because it's all cats, so they're like, let's have a rabbit. Right. And yeah, so apparently the laughogram cat that was shooting doe with a gun <laughs> wasn't the runaway hit he hoped it would be. So I watched a thing on Oswald the rabbit on, on um, YouTube, and uh, it talked about how like it was in partnership with Universal, mm-hmm. and basically Universal was calling the shots on uh, what the rabbit would look like and what it would be named as well. And that was because Lily, um, who's a, you know what? I don't know if anything I'm saying is true, but all I'm trying to get at is that uh, Oswald the Rabbit was in partnership with another company. I think it was Universal, and that uh, it was what led to its demise and Walt Disney being fired from the entity because they wanted to cut him out. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's funny too because some of his biggest business failures early on were just that he was too much of an asshole mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the 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 big thing that caused this collapse and caused them to cut it out was that no one wanted to work with him anymore because he was just such a dick mm. right all the animators signed a contract to be like yeah we'll work for you without walt basically yeah and walt warned the guy firing him being like well if they can do that to me they'll probably do it to you too and that did technically happen a few years later but the fact that walt had the foresight to be like Listen, they might be fucking me now, but if you give them enough power, they'll fuck you later. Well, so in fairness with this story, what actually happens here is Margaret Winkler, we mentioned, is his mm-hmm. original distributor. Okay. She marries a new husband who's named um, uh, Charles uh, Wintz. It, Charles Mintz is her new husband. Right. And he has the idea to cut Walt out because they own the Oz, uh His distributors own the intellectual property to Oswald the cat. Mm-hmm. So at some point they're like,
like, we don't need Walt here. He's just taking up a fat salary. We could just take his animators and make Oswald the Cat without him. And the only reason that happens, according to the American Experience documentary, is a ton of Walt's animators are frustrated at this point because a bunch of the old Kansas City hands uh, who had helped him get started had moved out there to L.A. and worked without pay in order to, uh, you know, help him get off the ground by just, you know, working uh, nights and weekends, working into the night throughout the weekends, um, and initially, again, working without pay, and Walt was taking most of the money and all of the credit. He was being, (laughs) I am the fucking genius. So it was just entirely him treating his animators like shit to the point where, and, you know, underpaying them and exploiting them to the point where they uh, took this offer from his distributor who said to them, hey, I'll hire you out. We can cut out Walt. Uh, Let's do this and make Oswald the cat ourselves. And so Walt gets cut out. Rabbit. There was, yeah, Oswald the rabbit. As I said, biggest challenges early on were just being too big of an asshole for people to want to work with them. Small, you know, small feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Disney eventually got Oswald the Rabbit back. And uh, I'll quickly mention this and we'll go back to his bio. Mm -hmm. But uh, in 2006, Bob Iger uh, traded the uh, football host of ABC, Al Michaels, to NBC because Al Michaels wanted to work with John Madden. And so for this trade, Bob Iger was like, we'll give you guys Al Al Michaels if you can give us Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And the NBC people were like, who? <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's a cartoon from 80 years ago. It's really important uh, for, for the Disney Corporation. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't give a fuck about an entity we're never going to use. And uh, so once they did that, they started selling uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit merch at Disney in 06. And uh, to Iger's credit, uh, the Disney heiress was like, the one thing Bob Iger said he would do was bring back Oswald the Rabbit. And he did that. So... Um, yeah, you know that rabbit that was originally drawn in 1926? It's really important to our property rights that nobody be able to draw that without permission from the Disney Corporation. Yeah. I mean, intellectual property law is just such fucking bullshit. Well, and Disney is bolstered. Every, yeah. every uh, you know, 20, 40, 60, you know, 80, every, every time their shit's about to come up that they can't own Mickey Mouse anymore, they're like, yeah. uh, we're going to give politicians 150 grand to make sure that we can own this shit longer. Mm. Yeah, get a new mouse, you fucking <laughs> parasites. They also, like, just the, the jump from Oswald to Mickey is so small. They're, like, talking about how it was just such a, a breakthrough to make Mickey Mouse and it's all, all that they really did is they gave him a, a longer snout mm-hmm. and round ears right mm-hmm. right and I guess they made his body more circular and well, that was it and that's literally what happened the first time is he lost Oswald the rabbit so he just remixed it as Mickey the mouse and mm-hmm. it was much more successful Mortimer Mickey, the mouse yeah, and then uh, someone was like it no well, his wife apparently <laughs> yeah, yeah he he Walt Disney called it Mortimer the mouse and his wife was like no that's stupid let's call it Mickey um, and then that, that was, of course, much more successful. But it's like, okay, so what if we just struck down the Mickey Mouse copyright? Like, okay, let's Disney. You have what two hundred billion dollars in assets. I think you can think of a new fucking mouse. <laughs> once you once you go back to a cat, I'm sure you'll think of something. Hey, cue up that drop. You know, listen. Here's my new pitch. It's a mouse, and it's got wings. And trust me, this mouse, it can fly now. <laughs> they fly now. They fly now. God, what a fucking abomination. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) 
He's whistling in the sky with wings. This is, it's not sailboat, Mickey. This is abhorrent. <laughs> it's blimp rat binky. I think it's the uh, the two Steam, greatest Steam moments Wars in Mickey his, in, in Disney history. <laughs> But so, um, Ub Iwerks was one of his old Kansas City animators who actually stuck with him. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the others left um, when they were uh, bought out by the distributor. But he has a small crew of loyalists around him. Um, Ub Iwerks is the one who draws Mickey Mouse. Um, Walt Disney does the voice. We mentioned his wife, Lillian. Walt's wife comes up with the name Mickey Mouse. Um, and so, they put together actually two of these Mickey Mouse shorts. But it's really... Adding sound is, you know, the innovation that, uh, to Walt's credit, he does come up with where the movie The Jazz Singer comes out in 1927, which, you know, up until that point, racism was silent. (laughs) And it was actually a turning point in America when they added an audio dimension to discrimination against African-Americans. You know, back in the day, I had to imagine the N-word. Now I can hear it. (laughs) They didn't say N-word, though, obviously. Right. No, it was it was like a transformative experience because all of the illiterate people now knew what that word on the screen was because a guy was saying yeah. it instead of they just didn't... putting it on the subtitles. Oh, it's that word I say all the time. They didn't need the... The audience didn't have to say it when the, it right. appeared right. on the screen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have to like in the silent movie era they would have to bring a black man to the front and point at him when that word came on the screen oh okay now I get the context yes. it was they, the theaters could save so much money because they didn't have to hire a black man to call the n-word when they were uh, hires a black a yeah. strong word yeah. I mean let's be honest here he, that man was there but he was not paid for that job but yes, yeah, so the jazz singer with Al Jolson in blackface comes out in 1927, and this is the first wildly successful uh, talkie movie, to you know, fair, sound movie. That would be a great, you know, not job, but position for a black person of that era. All I got to do is stand at the front of the theater, and people say the N-word at me, and I don't get beat up every day? I might take it. Yeah, it's like when uh, when when they're screening Birth of a Nation, you, you can make like... <laughs> five dollars a week if you just stand in like one of those cages they use to protect divers from sharks you got, you got audience members coming up to him after show like hey man i love your performance man every, every time i come here you stand i think to myself i finally get what they're putting on that damn screen like, and no. he became the mayor <laughs> they're like we told you don't put let them put their hands through the cage it is very dangerous Oh, man. After we screen this movie about reconstruction. Um, but yeah, so uh, the jazz singer comes out and Walt has the idea <clears throat> to add sound to the Mickey Mouse cartoons. And so they make two Mickey Mouse cartoons, which don't really go anywhere. But then they actually spend all their money. Apparently, they um, Walt and his brother Roy had bought some nice cars uh, when their studio was initially successful. Boss. Yeah, so they bought these nice cars, and Walt actually flies out to New York and um, finds one of the uh, most advanced sound studios at the time mm-hmm. and calls his brother and says, hey, we have to do sound for this Mickey cartoon. You know, sell my car, sell your car. Let's right. put everything in this. Uh, so, yeah, they the, Walt goes out to New York. And he goes to the sound studio, and they spend, you know, all their remaining capital, and they make Steamboat Willie is the first Mickey Mouse cartoon with sound. 
And Steamboat, <laughs> Steamboat Willie perf- uh, premieres at a New York theater in November when, 1928. When they're, sorry, when they're making Steamboat Willie... Like, he already knows it's going to fucking found their house, basically. <laughs> and, like, just that, okay, they're making it. And mm-hmm. suddenly, like, Lose Yourself comes on. <laughs> like, if you had one moment. With the whistle in the background. <laughs> what yeah, opportunity. <laughs> and, yeah, so they Walt spends three months in New York City trying to find a distributor, but what they actually do manage to do is find a local theater to screen uh, Steamboat Willie, and it's such a hit with the audience. Apparently, the audience, like, tries to demand they delay the feature film to, like, oh, screen wow. stream Steamboat Willie again because it is innovative. <laughs> My cartoons weren't good. They were just first. <laughs> uh, it was innovative in that, you know, they um, incorporated sound effects into these visual gags of a cartoon where, you know, they have the train whistles and all that other bullshit or the steamboat whistles, excuse me. Right. Um, so the Steamboat Willie is such a success that within months of its November 1928 debut, Mickey Mouse is a celebrity. Um, so, you know, and this really pays the bills from this point on because what they do, uh, uh, Walt and Roy Disney, they learn their lesson about getting fucked out of Oswald the rabbit or Mm. Oswald the cat or whatever he was. It's a rabbit. It was a rabbit. Uh, so they learn their lesson about getting fucked out of that. So they hire this guy, Kay Kamen, to be in charge of all licensing and distribution rights for Mickey the Mouse. Mickey the Mouse is a celebrity by 1929. So Kay Kamen is very sharp and actually makes them a ass load of money by going around and licensing Mickey Mouse very strategically, um, including uh, these Mickey Mouse watches, which apparently become the most popular watch in the United States uh, and, you know, very popular worldwide. Mickey Mouse lunchboxes, all this other bullshit that pops up right. 1929, it's why, 1930. It's why the Apple Watch has the Mickey Mouse fucking face, face type. Cause it's, oh, that's it's, interesting, yeah. Yeah, because, like, that, that entire partnership between Apple and Dis- uh, Disney is, is through that, like, Pixar connection, but it's like, <laughs> it's, it's Steve, you know, I don't know if it's Steve Jobs, but it's uh, that Mickey Mouse was so iconic that hmm. Apple wants to maintain that iconic level of genius yeah, just that tw- they don't have. Yeah, just 12 years later, uh, Waffen SS members would get to take them off the uh, hands of the <laughs> soldiers they executed at Malmody. They inspired the sequel, Screamboat Willie. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, and also these Mickey Mouse clubs start, uh, springing up where, you know, people will get together and go to the theater for these Mickey Mouse clubs, but really just very quickly demand explodes for, uh, Mickey Mouse shorts. So they're making a lot of these Mickey Mouse short cartoons, um, but also the licensing. This is what really makes them, um, uh, millionaires. And, you know, again, uh, Ub Iwerks is the main animator. Kay Kamen is the licensor. So... You know, uh, Walt and Roy Disney certainly did some work, but it is just, the mythology is always just rewritten as one man had a vision, Walt Disney did everything, and the actual reality is uh, a lot of smart people around him did the vast majority of the work. One man yelled at a lot of people around him. Actually, that makes sense that the uh, Apple Watch then had the mickey mouse thing on it because that's more or less what ended up happening with the iphone as well where they're like steve jobs had a vision and a lot of chinese slaves (laughs) (laughs) um 
But so, you know, by uh, 1931, this is the studio's full-time job is making these Mickey cartoons for the most part. Um, And Walt transitions uh, more from leaving the creative side to being an overseer, where everything that comes out of Walt Disney Studios, he will have final sign-off on, but it's more just independent teams of animators are coming up with shit and then showing it to Walt. And he's saying, oh, that's good. I'll take credit for that. I'll make, you know, uh, 99% of the profits on that. Um, but also it should be noted, apparently in 1931, his wife has a miscarriage and he has a nervous breakdown, um, and he's able to treat his nervous breakdown by going on a cruise to Panama and Cuba, uh, which again, uh, 1931 Mm. is the height of the great depression. So these kinds of, uh, breakdown treatments were not available to all (laughs) Americans at this time. Yeah, and the American experience, they're like, it's the first time Disney got to take a real vacation. <laughs> it's like, if that's a real vacation, I have never had a real vacation. And I don't think I ever will be able to have a real vacation. Um, and so, you know, uh, because of these Mickey Mouse cartoons, they're able to hire, you know, an animation staff of about 200 plus people. And in 1934, Walt Disney will pitch to this animation staff the idea for Snow White. Snow White will debut at the end of 1937, but it's basically he takes one of the the grim fairy tales um, and uh, remixes it, uh, which he will do um, uh, throughout his life, um, the idea of Snow White. But he has this animation team of more than 200 people, um, and... uh, the the story of Snow White is basically they they make over two hundred thousand separate drawings on this thing. Jeez. And Snow White, you know, it it holds up. I remember watching it as a child. You have to imagine watching it in the theater in nineteen thirty seven. It is a leap of technology beyond anything people had seen up to that point. Now the version oh, yeah. that you saw though, Sean, and I, I I haven't seen the movie for no real reason. Um, but it, was that is that an updated version? Are these remasters that we've seen growing up? Or I mean, well, no, the original was like a real it, if, even a remaster is all that means is that um they went back to the original frames like they, right they and, updated the colors and stuff like i know it's the original like uh drawings and and all that stuff but is it brighter the versions that we saw growing up is uh, it, it's probably it, yeah pr- i mean well the versions that we saw growing up were in like vcrs and so right, uh, right. you know the versions that we saw were probably much shadier than what they actually saw in the original theater oh, really? at the time yeah oh, interesting um, and it, it, hmm. it, one other thing to keep in mind though, is it's not just 200,000 pictures, it's 200,000 pictures in the movie. But one hmm. of the things that if you ever do animation really gets driven home is that you're not going to have the whole movie, uh, all, you're not going to be able to come up with the whole movie beginning to end and just start drawing things and move linearly. Like you're, you've got to do like. Uh, practice scenes, cut things, move right, things around. Right. You know, there's there's uh, probably I don't know ten times more the number Left of on the just cutting room floor. Yeah, ten yeah. times. I mean, not of like the whole process of finalizing all the frames, but, but like until you get like to a perfect drawings. frame, you gotta yeah. fucking practice doing the arm a billion times. I mean, not a billion, but yeah. you know, every frame must have at least five trials. So you think they had two million individual? I, in terms uh, of like, from drawings. like certainly in terms of yeah. like from yeah, character probably. drawings, concept drawings, everything. Uh, yeah. yeah, 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this apparently, man, sorry. Apparently, this is why some of the animators would sneak like nudity and other bullshit in there. Yeah, it's they're just fucking it, psychotic it's, at that yeah, point. Yeah, it's so fucking tedious doing like <laughs> all these frames for every single thing that you could just like sneak a little naked picture in there and nobody will notice it until DVD pause is invented. Wasn't that an urban myth, or it was like they just put it in one frame for something Disney was looking over and then he caught it, and because uh, they just wanted to test how sharp his eye was. No, there was. Uh, I'm spacing on the who name, would, but there is the right mind would want to challenge this man <laughs> yeah. this way. I mean, maybe yeah, this they, was like when things started to really go sour. Nah, that sounds like like a myth, dog. That sounds like animators would do it. Know. They'd be like, oh, they they did it so they could test his his bowl. I mean, when they were like previewing it to him, and then he was like, never do that again. But you know, I never would have caught it if it weren't a naked woman. <laughs> Uh, in a Vulture article about whether or not uh, Disney was racist, sexist, and or froze his head, they're, they're, they're talking about this book that uh, Gabler wrote. I don't know exactly the name of the book, but Gabler cites a meeting in which Disney referred to Snow White dwarves as a N-word pile and another in which he used the term piccaninny. You guys know what piccaninny means? Uh, it's a slur for African-American children. Well, would you look at that? Uh, yeah. I don't know why Sean's the only one that knew that in this room, but... Uh. I think we all know why Sean's the only one that knew that in this room. Um, but anyways, I wanted to, before we run out of time on part one, uh, I will just say, for Snow White, you know, it has its debut in December 1937. Apparently, Clark Gable was weeping at the premiere. It was, like, a real thing. It, it was, was. Up, up until that point, the highest-grossing movie of all time, even though it ran, like, six times over the original budget, and Roy, uh, Walt's brother, had to keep telling Bank of America, who lent them the money, like, hey, we just need a little more time. You know, it was kind of, people thought it was going to fail, but he actually did manage to make it all work together. And it should just be noted from Snow White, he made a lot of promises to the animators about, you know, bonuses. And again, he just canceled shares of the profit in 1936. Made a lot of promises to the animators about bonuses, which he never delivered on. According to the the animators, they were working 12-hour days. The Ink Girls were working 12-hour days, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And a lot of the other animators said they were working even more than that, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So this is, you know, just to get the movie done. So... Uh, another animator, I watched his like th- talk about the strike on YouTube where he says that Walt, because in the New Deal, they finally introduced the 40-hour work week, right. Walt would tell his animators, hey, just say you worked 40 hours. <laughs> so they would work 50 hours or 48 hours or whatever, and then they would just mark that they worked 40 hours. Ugh. So they made all of these sacrifices to make Snow White, and then, as we'll talk about on part two... I mean, that phrase isn't completely unfamiliar to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've heard some variant of that before. Um, but we'll talk about, on part two, the December or the 1941 strike at uh, Disney, which... Is, they would that will live in infamy. Yeah, the uh, but a lot of that is just grievances that build out of Snow White, where they right. do all of this fucking work for for him, and he gives this. Uh, he takes all his animators into an auditorium and gives a speech that is basically like, uh, if you don't like the way your life is going, you just got to work harder. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. He, he gives like a Jordan Peterson speech. We'll we'll read some of it on the on the next part. This sounds so much yeah. like a Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, like startup. It really, oh, yeah. it, it 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 was such the most dickish, like <laughs> just uh, baiting speech that 
caused union uh, agitation to spike mm-hmm. and union union membership to just go through the roof. I mean, like, it really does feel like Adam Newman, WeWork-esque. Like, it's just oh, yeah. a huge fucking startup on a gamble that is, we're going to make cartoons for kids. Uh, okay, Walt. Yeah. Well, it's like, and so by this point, uh, by the point of the strike, the Disney studio had become very stratified into a hierarchy where they had like a private gym and a private spa for all like the highest ranking people. And in the speech, Walt says something to the effect of, you know, I think the uh, ranks and privileges are distributed based on how valuable you are to society and the company. (laughs) And so it makes sense that, you know, the people with the more privileges are much more valuable to the organization. But of course, it wouldn't function without all the people doing the so-called grunt work. But And if you want to experience that today, work for Michael. Microsoft. <laughs> that is exactly how it was when I was there. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, we're, we're running out of time on part one here. So we will pick up in part two with the, um, the story of the, um, the strike of 1941, which I think is a turning point, And then we will keep going until Walt's death from lung cancer uh, in 1966. Oh. And then continue in part three with the history of the Disney company after that. But before we run out of time on part one here, I did just want to mention the um, Walt Disney's connection to the Nazi party. Oh. Because uh, it's worth talking about. I guess most people have uh, maybe the image in their head that Walt Disney was an Mm -hmm. anti-Semite, you know, these sorts of things. And the story is a little complicated, but just according to Paste Magazine, um, Art Babbitt is an illustrator we'll talk a bit more about next time. He was one of the highest paid um, uh, illustrators who eventually joined the Strikers um, against Walt Disney. Uh, But according to him, he said that, quote, in the immediate years before the U.S. entered World War II, there was a small but fiercely loyal, I suppose legal, following of the Nazi party. Uh, There were open meetings anybody could attend, and I wanted to see what was going on myself. On more than one occasion, I observed Walt Disney and Walt Disney's lawyer there, along with a lot of prominent Nazi-affiliated Hollywood personalities. Disney was going to these meetings all the times. All the time. And this was, of course, the uh, German-American Bund, which is also called the uh, American Nazi Party. And they were particularly prominent before the United States entered World War II um, on the side of the Allies. That seems totally legit. I don't see anything wrong with that. And You know, when you and your lawyer roll up to a German gang of people saying white nationalism is a good thing? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, also, according to the same Paste article, uh, Walt Disney personally hosted Nazi filmmaker Lenny Reifenstahl when she came to promote her film Olympia in 1938, a month after the infamous assault on Jews known as Kristallnacht, the Night of the Broken Glass, in which a pogrom was initiated against German Jews, which, uh, again, even this visit with Lenny Reifenstahl was condemned by large segments of the American press at the time. Wow. Because, again, it came a month after a massive pogrom against Jews in Germany had just been carried out. Um, Was she allowed to use the gym? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She was there promoting her film Olympia, which she made in 1938 to glorify Hitler's Nazi Olympics in 1936. Mm -hmm. Apparently they traded notes as filmmakers and all that other bullshit. Um, but just according to the same uh, Paste article, uh, Walt gave her a grand tour of his studio, and Reifenstahl even commented that, quote, it was gratifying to learn how thoroughly proper Americans distanced themselves from the smear campaigns of the Jews, unquote. Uh, yeah. (laughs) 
And so uh, apparently a possible explanation, well, one explanation the Paste article offers is that Disney wanted to get his films back into Germany after in 1938 Hitler had banned American films from Germany because Hollywood was, quote, controlled by the Jews. Um, but you can imagine if he attends Nazi meetings, he probably has some sympathy for Lenny Reifenstahl and her style of filmmaking, as well as the Third Reich in general. So uh, this uh, is Zippity Doodah from, as we mentioned, a, a song that or a uh, <clears throat> a film that never quite made it to Disney Plus called mm. uh, Song of the South. And when it premiered in 1946 in Atlanta, the star of it, the man who is singing Zippity Doodah iconically, was not allowed to attend the premiere because it was a segregated theater. And the song went on Jesus. to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song. That, that guy get union wages, though? <laughs> I <laughs> doubt it. The black actor in that, in that did, he get, uh, did he get union wage? Did he get I, SAG? <laughs> like, just put down 30 hours. You get fucking residuals? You get royalties on that song? Uh, you know, to compliment oh, Sean's... his name's James Basket, by the way. To compliment Sean's uh, Hitler, I mean, uh, Nazi Disney connections, if you look up All the World is a Stage, Walt Disney was Hitler, oh boy, that's a rabbit hole you're not going to get out of. Because <laughs> it's literally people that believe that Walt Disney is Hitler, not there's Hitler and Walt Disney, that Walt Disney's Hitler. <laughs> Joseph Goebbels is actually Roy Disney. And that they could figure this out because their ears are the same. And their teeth are kind of similar. And, oh, I love um, when people do like side-by-side oh, ear comparisons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they like got the that, fucking yeah. letters and the numbers. And so if you look up all the world's stage, uh, Walt Disney was Hitler. Boy, that's, uh, that's three hours of your life you're never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> well, two great artists. I think we can agree on that. <laughs> Um, but it is something where, you know, uh, well, two, two people who were never that, who, who wanted to be great yep. artists, but weren't that good. Exactly. They had a bunch of other people the, do all the their art parallels are there. They, uh, they paid their employees the wages of destruction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, conspiracy theories are fun, but you, you, they're, like, they're like quicksand. You can get stuck in them. Hmm. But, you know, so Walt Disney was, at least for a time, affiliated with the Nazi Party. Um, after the war, he would uh, testify to the House Un-American Activities Committee and uh, denounce a bunch of labor organizers as communists. He would join some various fascist and anti-Semitic um, uh, Hollywood groups, uh, including the uh, Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which we'll talk about a bit more on Part 2. But it should just be noted that during World War II, actually... Uh, Disney is kept in business partly by the United States government because he does make propaganda films for the U.S. government and uh, against the Nazi government. Against himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Throws people off the trail. Um, but we, we will pick up on part two with the, uh, the animator strike against him and some of the labor concerns, and then we will finish out uh, up until the 1966 death of Walt Disney, and then we'll talk a bit more about the Disney Corporation itself, all the various labor violations, um, the, uh, let's say, underage network that uh, Yogi has volunteered to stay up all night <sighs> researching 
uh, because we want to get the full rust coal effect. So we're recording this Friday night. We will come back tomorrow, Saturday morning. And Yogi has promised us he will not sleep at all before we begin recording. Boil up some Mountain Dew. It's going to be a long night. Um, but uh, is there anything else before we uh, end uh, this particular part of the Disney story? Palmer? This is one of my favorite parts in Fantasia. Oh, yeah? What's it? <laughs> Those fucking brooms. <laughs> and with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Stu Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Uh, parts two and three of Disney are going to be on the Patreon. We will be skipping one free SoundCloud episode for the new year and for Yogi's wedding. Uh, but look for us to resume the regular schedule um, January 7th, 2020. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And have a wonderful new year. Happy holidays. Boil up some Mountain Dew. It's going to be a long night.